Hello and welcome to Building Brand You, the show where we help you to accelerate your success, getting you more clients, more revenue, more business and more opportunities by unlocking your greatest asset, you. My name is Kim Hainer. I'm an international business coach, a recognized global expert on leadership and visibility, and I designed this podcast for you to help you unlock what you already have and to give you a whole host of tools and techniques that you can implement in order to accelerate your success and build your own brand you. We also publish exclusive material, offers and behind the scenes content in our Building Brand You Facebook group. And if you'd like to find out more about our Building Brand You coaching programs, you can book a free 20 minute call with me where we'll explore where you are and whether Building Brand You coaching is the right fit for you. You'll find both of those links, as well as many others, in the show notes. So let's unlock this episode and lift the lid on what's next in Building Brand You. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special series of Building Brand You Down Under. Today, we're going to be talking about healthy brand, and not just in the context of building your business, but in actually building your career and understanding what building a personal brand might mean in that context. So I am delighted to welcome my very good friend, Jason Burgess, to be our guest on this episode. I have known Jason for over 20 years when he was first involved in recruiting a number of my team when I was back in Melbourne. We have stayed in touch all of these years that I have been away in London and I am always impressed by his willingness to learn, his willingness to grow, but also his passion for what he does and his focus on building a specific personal brand, not only for himself in his industry, but also for the candidates and companies he serves. A little more about Jason. After growing up in a small country town, Kilmore, about an hour north of Melbourne, and attending Assumption College, teaching him strong people values and work ethics, Jason went on to successfully complete a Bachelor of Business in Commerce and Finance at Monash University. His career originally commenced in finance with a major TV network, Network 10 here in Australia, before realising and making a change to a passion of his towards people-oriented career in recruitment. For over 25 years, Jason has worked within the recruitment industry in large corporate environments, in end-to-end consulting positions, as well as senior leadership positions managing highly successful teams. It wasn't until having a family and realising the need for work-life balance that he established his own recruitment business, Max Executive, which focuses on mid to senior level sales and marketing positions, both nationally and internationally, across fast-moving consumer goods, consumer goods, hospitality and retail franchising, as well as the sport and leisure sectors. Jason has a basic philosophy when it comes to his business. It is treat others as you want to be treated yourself. And he has established a knowledge base and network that is both highly regarded and the envy of many in the marketplace that is highly competitive and ever evolving. His own and Max Executive's business motto is about maximising possibilities. 
I hope you enjoy my conversation with the wonderful Jason Burgess. Well, hello, Jason. How are you today? Thanks for joining us on Building Brand You. Uh, hey, Kim, how are you? It's been ages and ages. I know we've known each other for a long, long time, but no, it's 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 great to see you and great to see you well. Not Thank necessarily you. live, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, listeners, uh, Jason and I have known each other uh, since reasonably early in our careers, actually. We were talking about this just before we started recording. So we've kind of watched each other grow in our careers. And, and I'm, Yeah. And I'm really excited that my good mate Jason is on the show today. So I'm looking forward to a great conversation. To get us started, um, what I like to do is um, hand the mic over to my guest because you will talk about your story far better than I will. So without any further ado, I am going to pass the mic over to you and say, um, so who is Jason Burgess? What's your story? <laughs> How long have we got? No. Yeah, well, um, <laughs> Initially, uh, growing up in the country, about an hour and a half north of uh, Melbourne, a place, little township called Kilmore, and uh, grew up on a farm. And not to bore you with too many details, but I suppose the big thing and the big learning that I, from uh, my foundations of my family and everything else, growing up in a country town, and it's not country versus metro, but it's it's very much about the values, about the work ethic that you're able to espouse, and I think. That going and 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 going to a fairly disciplined college, an assumption college, uh, it certainly uh, taught you a number of um, the as I, as I said, the work ethics, the values, and all the sorts of things that you need. I think in in building your career and those sorts of things, which fed nicely into me sort of moving to Melbourne. And um, I initially, actually, funny enough, started my career in accounting. I did a commerce degree at Monash um, and my first real accounting role was at um, one of the major networks in Channel 10, which was a lot of fun um, and certainly um, helped me learn some of those skills. But one of the things that I realised and, and giving advice to so I'm in recruitment, giving advice to candidates and clients, you can make the transition because I went from an accounting commerce role into a people-oriented role into recruitment, which is a very different I suppose, a very different spiel on going from doing a very process analytical role into a slightly more creative people-oriented role, which fed me into recruitment because um, the business I was working with was a very people-oriented um, type organisation um, and that had helped give me the confidence to be able to make those decisions to go into, um, and, and I'm probably, I suppose, I'd say it's the best decision I've made in my life, apart from going into recruitment, even though, you know, certain people might have certain views of what recruiters are like. Um, I love, absolutely love what I do. Maybe not a, a big ad fan of our industry because it depends on who you get at the end of an interview and those sorts of things. But my view on it is I just love the people connection that I that have in my role. But I started life in um, in recruitment with a company called Tanner Menzies, uh, which was subsequently bought a couple of times, but is now part of a company called Randstad, which is a global recruitment organisation. But but Peter Tanner, Mark Emerson and, and Peter Gleason, who are the co-founders of the business, taught me a lot about recruitment and how to treat people. And the biggest thing I'd say in what we do is treat others as you want to be treated yourself. Um, and that's what Tanner Menzies was very much about. 
And that's what fed me into recruiting and a big passion for brands and like your business. Um, it's all about branding. You know, I deal a lot with um, everything from fast-moving consumer goods, sport and leisure, hospitality, uh, retail franchising. I do typically stick away from the big box retailers because they're more transactional type recruitment where my business is more around executive search and recruitment. So it's more mid to senior level recruitment. Um, and then uh, uh, from there, um, when the business was actually sold, um, I got approached by a smaller business that was looking to, as a startup in Melbourne, a company called Ethos. And again, it was a great move. Um because it gave me the opportunity from a senior leadership point of view, because I held senior leadership roles at Tanner Menzies, um, gave me the opportunity to build something, um, which then four years later, subsequently, my business, Max Executive, uh, which is my own brand, uh, and it gave me the skills to be able to actually establish it in a way that I wanted to, even though I did actually um, uh, register the, the name Max Executive uh, when I finished up at Tanner Menzies and probably in hindsight, probably should have done it back then, but probably may not necessarily have had the skills to do it. And that's what I'm very grateful to to Ethos for. And working with some really great people that along the way, uh, and I don't want to name them, you know, um, and working, you know, with clients and, and people like yourself along the way is really, I've been very fortuitous. And, you know, I can only say that I'm very grateful to have been able to, to succeed in most of the things I've been able to do. So, mm. yeah. Brilliant. And here we are. Here we are. We are. We are. I think, yes, I no, think yes, it's, seven, it's over 20 years later, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes. <laughs> when, we, when we first started dealing with each other and, and first meeting each other, which yeah. has been a fan. I think that's the key in recruitment to, to, from a networking point of view, the success comes from building. It's, and again, this is not rocket science. Um, and we're not about curing cancer. We're about building relationships. And it's, um, you know, those networks that you build along the way, particularly in a market like Australia, more so Melbourne and Sydney, that where it's like I classify it like a big country town because everybody knows everybody. And I think social media tools, whether it be LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera, um, you know, one of my inferences is never burn any bridge because the thing is people, you know, you know what it's like. Um, people will talk and it's a domino effect um, and that hopefully... Good people know good people, and that's how it should work. And again, not rocket science. Mm, I've been in yeah. business for about seven, eight years now um, yeah. from a, an executive search point of view with Max Executive uh, and work with, been lucky enough and fortuitous enough to work with small, medium, large multinationals, um, some big personalities, um, some, and obviously dealing with some challenging times through everything from. September 11th to Bali to GFC to COVID uh, and obviously we're about to go through a whole new cycle with interest rate rises and stuff like that so I think we're about to see a change in the economic environment and it'll be interesting to see what happens from there. Yeah brilliant so I loved when you said good people know good people because one of our um one of our philosophies as well is that it's not what you know it's not who you know it's who knows you and you know that's part, part of that reputation and branding that we need to think about is it's not just the thing we think about inside our head it's how we show up for others and how Absolutely. people relate to us and what's their experience of us Definitely. And that's that, you know, you talk about brand, that's how you build your own brand. It's not about holistically the company you're working for and things like that, because typically whilst 
even if you're working for a, we talked about Coca-Cola earlier before we jumped online, is that it's not just about the brand itself, that people are buying from you, right, Uh, as as an individual, not just as as a big brand like a Coca-Cola because you're building those relationships. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I'm really interested. I just want to go back a little bit. And you, um, you talked about Ethos being a startup. Um, and yep. and I, I'm really interested in going from Tanner Menzies, who was a bit more established, I guess, then into a startup. Oh, yeah. How did that, how did working for a startup, you think, shape how you built your own business in Max Executive? Yeah, like uh, to be fair, Ethos was uh, already established in Sydney, so it we, we tried and and it was built off the back of different practices, as in there they were more in financial services, IT project management, and things like that. Where my background and the experience that, that I bought, and also along with to be fair with others in retail, um, uh, who who initially did set Ethos up uh, originally, that in sales and marketing it's a bit different. So and that was a marketplace that we developed and off the back of strong relationships that we had at Tatamenzies um, along the way. Um, I, I suppose going from managing large teams of over 20 plus to a team that initially was only about five or six um, to a team that grew to close to 15. And, and it was during some pretty exciting times. Uh, and it was tough because it was actually during GFC that we did it. And it was funny during that time talking to a lot of clients and candidates, more so clients, and I know you'll laugh at this, is that it was during that time where, and you find in, a, in an economic environment where the market's spiralling out of control, a lot of clients were laying people off. Um, and I made a bit of a joke to a lot of my clients. I said, don't make me rich out of a result of your hastiness in terms of your decision-making. And what I meant by that is that typically six to 12 months after this economic cycle occurs, you're back rehiring either the same roles or the similar roles. I said, you're going to be hopefully back using me to recruit those roles. And I said, well, don't make me rich as a result of that. And so I suppose the transition was one of... um, the networks and again I, I will keep repeating it over and over again and again not a rocket science type comment that the, the strength in the networks you build is the is the critical nature of how we all need to operate whether it be in my in my line of work in in any of the clients that we deal with or any of the candidates because it becomes one of those things that it makes your job a lot easier if those relationships are intact and in place and people respect, trust you and those sorts of things. Mm, yeah. You've talked a little bit too about, you know, growing up in um, a country town um, in <laughs> Victoria here and there's sort of the work ethic and some of the values that came out of that and then moving to quite a disciplined um, education experience. <laughs> um, sure. I, I had no idea, but um, <laughs> shows you how much you can <laughs> a learn. A lot of people even. don't. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, you've talked about work ethic and discipline. What are some of the other values that came out of your growing up experience, do you think? Um, like I think, and again, I, 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 admit that I might sound a little bit repetitious, but it's, it's working with people. And I think, and again, the relationships that you're building, and again, um, that, that to invest the time in people, that if you're not prepared to, to, to 
to take the time because it takes time for people to build that trust. And if you can't engage and build that trust with people, you're not going to get too far. Um, yeah. And that's the same with, you know, in, you know, your your business, from like all of us, about branding. is mm. If you can't engage and build those trust, and I think the values that come out, of, and it's not just country, but I suppose that because there's a tightness in the community that if you can build that initial trust with people, that I find that it makes life a lot easier and people will, will engage with you um, and and you build that level of credibility, um, you build that level of, um, I suppose, friend, friendships for want of a better word, like you you and I, you look at over 20-odd years. Is it, mm. is it, I don't, and in no, no disrespect to what I do for a job, I don't necessarily set out to, to make friends, but you do make friends as a result of the work that you do do. It's not deviating too far away from the work ethic and the value proposition that we talked about earlier, but I think the relationships and the trust and the credibility and those sorts of things are super crucial. Um, You know, yeah, we can go and talk about disciplines, about building, you know, um, different, um, I suppose, skills that you need to develop over the journey, e.g., like I've got strong commercial skills, which a lot of people wouldn't know about, and, and those analytical skills that actually help the foundations of running any business. And that was probably what I looked at. You know, to be fair, I copied off my dad. My dad was an accountant. Um, and <laughs> so that's what led me into accounting. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily I deliberately did that, but it was just because my dad did it. Um, it was interesting, but I thought, okay, it, it's the foundations of most businesses that if you don't have the commercial acumen to be able to run or or build a business that, that that they were the crucial thing. So initially, I thought it was all about finances. Yeah. But then it, it came to realise it was more about people than it was about finances. But I think having the two makes a real, um, it, it, it makes it a lot easier to make a successful business. Yeah, I I'd agree with that because um, most people, I think, and most entrepreneurs swing either one way or the other, hugely people focused or. Um, sort of on the other side of a hugely task or analytics focused and that sort of thing. And I think there's something there's something quite unique about being able to build the balance between the two. You know, you talked about, you know, not burning bridges before. And isn't it lucky that you didn't <laughs> that you didn't kind of junk the the whole commercial not a whole lot of commercial knowledge that you'd gained and kind of went, okay, well, how can I apply this? to this people orientation that I really want to build in in my career. Were there any um, challenges around that that particular shift? Was there anything that you you kind of moved across and went, ooh, that's a surprise, or missed from accounting? Um, Oh, look, I think I suppose working in a high-profile business like a Channel 10, you know, you miss the the fun, you know, involvement in, you know, everything from the Melbourne Cup to... Uh, Good morning, Australia, with Bert Newton and, and these sorts of things. Hey, it you know there's a bit of an ego trip attached to that as well. You know, it's, it was exciting, and it was during a time where Channel Ten had just come out of receivership. Funny enough, um, where and I was part and parcel with the process of selling the business uh, to a company called Can West, which is a large global uh, TV business out of uh, Canada, and then actually listed on the stock exchange. So I got exposed to many different things along the way from a. Um, um a structural point of view and but but i suppose the things that were different for me were um 
the the actual doing part where I was part of a very structured environment to something that was less structured. So I, I had to create the structure itself, even though Tanner Menzies was fairly well established. It was still going through a process of an evolution of it was still defining itself as a business because hmm. when I started there, it was only about five or six years old. So it was still going through that process of defining who it was. And don't get me wrong, there's some great people, including the founders of the business that that helped establish a wonderful business that it was, that, that helped teach me some of these skills along the way. And for, I'll be forever grateful. And I'm still in more in touch with somebody like Peter Tanner, who is certainly one of my mentors along the way and has helped define me. Like, he's a bit of a father figure, even though he's not my dad, but, yeah. but that certainly helped define a little bit about who I am today. Yeah, I think that's really... particularly in the, in, the, in the business that I run as well. Sorry. Yeah. No, um, I was just going to say some of those, they're not, always relationships that we seek out but they kind of turn up in front of us and all of a sudden they have this huge huge capacity to for us to learn and to shape who who we want to be in our career um not just who we think we are you know we have role models and that sort of thing and i think that's a that's a great example of that 100 percent, and and i I don't want to and this is not about naming people but there's there is another person in there that that was uh, defining a pup with peter tanner and she's she's a competitor of mine but she's a friend she's probably one of my better friends uh virginia bacon who um grew up with me at tanner and she uh, became the general manager and you know we pumped it form part of the senior leadership team but but as you said you have role models along the way but people that you 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 really admire for their work not just their work ethic but just who they are as their their value proposition and those sorts of things and you Mm. you can say okay they're 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 the sort of role models and people you want to replicate and hopefully from a personal point of view with my family and everything else like that that you know you've got points of references along the way that can, can help define you and I suppose becoming a parent as well is that it helps you along the way in being a role model for your children as well. So yeah, sometimes they become our best mentors, don't they? Because they're they quite do. good at pointing out where we're inauthentic or inconsistent at making mistakes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We live in a whole new world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit more about. Um, sort of the that industry you're in and the and the the role that you do and, and what you see. So one of the things um that has always stuck with me because you know we worked together a lot when I was in Australia before I came over to the UK. And you you're quite when I say you're reasonably specialist in what you where you choose to recruit and what industries you work in. So could you talk a little bit about um, what that is and why you've chosen to be a little bit more specialised rather than some of the generalists that are in the market? Yeah, like maybe if I start by saying that the reality is if you are a generalist in recruitment or executive search, you are going to struggle okay. um, because the reality is companies you know, re- recruitment is not a, uh, from a skill base, it's not the most challenging. Uh, like you, you've got to be able to judge and you've got to be able to read people and those sorts of things. So, yes, there is a certain skill level to to be able to defining that. Mm. But the reality is what people are buying from you is not just you, but they're buying your knowledge. And if you're talking about knowledge and expertise in a certain marketplace, 
the you know for example the 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 the, the um, industry sectors that I mentioned before fast moving consumer goods consumer goods sport and leisure uh, hospitality retail and they're all sort of intertwined because they do work within each other like even from if you talk about sport and leisure typically from a consumer good point of view you find most fmcg consumer good companies are sponsoring major events from you know the afl in australia to tennis to to, to many other different things so if you don't have the knowledge base of um, understanding the idiosyncrasies of those marketplaces, you are going to struggle. And I suppose I related to those sectors early on because of coming out of, e.g., a place like Network 10, um, from playing tennis to other things. And I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a mad sport nut. You know, I love everything from footy to cricket to tennis. Um, and, and particularly when you look at Melbourne and Sydney, which is very uh, event-based and obviously was hit hard during COVID because mm. everything was in lockdown and we are an event-based city. Uh, you can imagine a few people getting very bored and, and everything else like that. But but getting back to what I was referring to from my business point of view in the areas that I specialise in, predominantly more in sales and marketing, that you are dealing with front-of-house people, that you need to have a clear line of what that means to an organisation. And if you don't understand for example, in fast-moving consumer goods where you're dealing with different retail markets from, say, grocery, where you've got the duopoly of Coles and Woolworths to, and that's more an insightful data-driven marketplace, to, say, hardware, which is about like a Bunnings, um, a Mida 10, et cetera, and that's, excuse the expression, a bit more old school, is that you've got a, a greater variation between the two retail sectors. So recruiting in grocery to recruiting in hardware, whilst they should be very similar, they are very different in the skills that are required to work well in both sectors. Given that, do people cross sectors? Do candidates successfully <laughs> cross sectors? Or do given that, do we tend to stay uh, the same? I think because, for example, in grocery, um, it's probably the most sophisticated because of the data insights and the analysis that even in sale, in a like a national account management type role or mm. a brand management type role, very different towards what looks like in hardware, for example. That's very relationship-based. It's, it's very old school. It's entertaining. It's doing many different things, even though that still goes on in grocery, that most of it is very fact-based, very data-driven. So to be able to even get a footprint in a Coles or a Woolworths, you have to have a very compelling business case which requires a lot of research and data analysis and those sorts of things where getting into to Bunnings and, and excuse the expression, you know, it's about flogging products. That, that That's exactly what they do and that's how, that they buy in bulk and sell it. And, and it's a very, don't get me wrong, Bunnings is probably one of the best retailers running around, but it's not the most sophisticated business on mm. the basis that, that they, they buy a lot of product and they sell it at a lower price than everybody else. And that's why they can guarantee that 10% low price deal to everybody because they know that they are the cheapest in town, but also they represent quality as well. Don't get me wrong, the difference between price variation and quality because they do represent a quality, a variety of quality brands as well at the same time. You mentioned earlier on the duopoly between Coles and Woolworths, and certainly um, there are, you know, there are other retailers in Australia. I mean, I've been away for 18 and a half years, so it's been a long time since I've worked in the market. But, you know, the 
the advent of places like Aldi and Little and yep. and um, the IGA uh, franchise. I, I mentioned the duopoly more because Cosmo was just don't own supermarkets. They own, they're in petrol and convenience, they're in liquor, they're in, believe it or not, you know, wherever you see a, a BWS sign or beer, wine and spirits that's attached to a hotel, that's a Woolworths owned hotel or pub, that's of a better word. Yep. Um, uh, that's a deal that they uh, struck with Bruce Matheson, the, the poker machine king. Okay. Um, so the duopoly is, you know, Woolworths and Coles would own between 60 to 70% of the retail market. Yes, Aldi have done a fantastic job in infiltrating the market coming out of Europe um, and a different business model. Um, and they've become a more, even though they're previously a more private label driven brand, they've become more branded, which is great because they become more competitive against the likes of Coles and Woolworths. Um, little hasn't made that well they haven't they're not in australia at this point in time okay. i'd like to see more, and costco certainly been successful but again it's it, it's it's a bit more like a, a, a buddings type scenario where when you're talking about the uk where obviously you reside now uh and the us you have a lot more competition so the competition means that it holds the retailers more accountable and in australia they typically hold the power of control versus suppliers that sell into it, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I remember it well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's and that's why, you know, to be honest, there's a lot of candidates that work within that on the supply side that work within Coles and Woolworths are looking at variants of what they can do outside of Coles and Woolworths in other retail sectors, even mm. though it might be still in an FMCG type line of work that ultimately a lot of them are a, a bit, excuse the expression, they're over Coles and Woolworths. And that's no disrespect to Coles yeah. and Woolworths, is that it becomes frustrating because they know what they're in for. But that gets back to my ability to uh, explain that to clients because it's that knowledge base, again, that actually becomes your point of difference, is that you're able to articulate that from a candidate point of view, because they're, that, that's articulating what how the candidates are feeling too. And they're looking for something a little bit different too. And you mentioned, you asked me before, getting back to an earlier question that I probably didn't answer, is that that crossing over between grocery to other channels was that a lot of clients or prospective employees want it, but they tend to deviate back to their old older habits and even though the FMCG principles and grocery principles are very relevant in other sectors, they typically get back to their old habits of recruiting the same people. And unfortunately, you do see a lot of people making the move, but then they make the move back because the reality is that it just doesn't work yeah, or hasn't worked yeah. or they haven't invested the time to maybe let it go for a little bit longer because the impact that they can have. Yeah, I, th I think that's really interesting too because I'm someone who moved around a bit, um, sort of in the in the consumer goods and and FMCG space. But I wasn't someone who stayed at companies for years and years and years. I, I moved around in the in, within the company, and then when I left, I went to other sectors. Yes, and then going to the UK, um, I started. You know, I was in in marketing and national account management here in Australia, and um, all of a sudden, I went into business development with. Well, all sorts of companies um, worked for some amazing businesses, everything from media to global packaging companies to Tetley Tea to airline um, catering, that sort of thing. I love that newness. It's uncomfortable. 
yes, because you feel like yeah. you're a piece of baggage that is not contributing for a little while. <laughs> but but I've grown to love the the ability to kind of look at somewhere with new eyes and go, oh, I've never seen that before. I wonder why they do it that way. You know, instead of going, oh, my goodness, if only they did it, blah, 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 blah. I think there's something about just looking at what's so and noticing versus going in to fix it straight away. And But I've certainly found that that grounding in FMCG and particularly working, you know, in with accounts like Coles and Woolworths on the other side of the table, having that data and being able to talk not just about the relationship but about the data that will make a difference to their business has been a huge thread in my career. Um, yeah. wherever I've ended up. And I up. think that the other retailers outside of Cosmo Woolworths are now investing, they see the advantages of having more data because the, the information can be paralyzing because you get too fixated on it. Yeah. But I think that they realize the advantages of having it is knowledge, the old saying, knowledge is power. Yeah. And having that information in front of you and knowing what, the, from a price point point of view to market data, you know, it, it does enable you to present a compelling argument to be able yeah. to get product in shelf in certain retailers as well and getting back to your point about you know you talking working within differing organizations not for a certain period of time but the other thing I'd say that like what I did initially going from accounting into a people-oriented role in recruitment I say the same of the candidates I work with they will start start in a certain discipline from whether it be marketing sales supply chain etc I encourage and I encourage more businesses and in perspective employees to look at it. It's a bit like graduate programs where mm. you want them, like a typical graduate program, you're not going to just work in sales. You're going to go into look at marketing. You're going to go in supply chain. And people will find a niche for themselves, e.g., let's call it sales, and they'll start in a sales representative role. They'll move into field management, account management, business management, all the way to a sales director. That's an atypical path from an FMCG salesperson, but I do encourage them as along the way that they do do differing things, whether it be in category management, brand management, supply chain management. And I've even seen in certain instances where they've gone into finance and HR, uh, or sorry, I should call it people and culture as it's now now known. Um, but, but I think my advice to both clients or prospective employees and candidates out there is try to get as much cross-functional experience as possible because not only will that add value to the organisation you're working for, it will add value to your career as well because it makes you more marketable. Because typically, you know, in the past, e.g. the CEOs of this world, and this is going back into maybe into the 90s, is that you typically have found that they are accountants by trade, mm. <laughs> like me. Yeah. yeah. But, but now you probably find that they've grown up more as a sales and marketing director because they're more front of house. They know how to sell the proposition. No disrespect to accountants out there, um, but I'd say to you more often than not that the, C, that the future CEOs or the CEOs that are currently sitting in their roles, particularly in the lines of work that I recruit in, have come out of a sales, sales and marketing discipline as opposed to, say, finance. And my encouragement would be uh, yeah. that, cross, that cross-functional nature of getting that cross-functional experience. So, and encouraging companies, employees to actually look at that. Yeah. Because even though it's it's easy picking to go externally to find a specialist in sales or marketing, look internally because sometimes you've got the nugget internally to be able to make the crossover into a certain discipline. Yeah. I think that's great 
advice. Um, I also mm. think you're right, it makes you more marketable. So to that point, there's making yourself marketable so that, for example, someone like you can present them to a company. But how do people address making themselves more marketable when they're already in a business and they perhaps, you know, like you did, you you know, want to shift to a different area? How do they position themselves, I guess, to be able to do that? You know, what have, what have you seen that, that really works and perhaps what doesn't work? I'll give you an example. I think back in the mid 2000s when the introduction of like as Cosmo and I'll get back to the Cosmo you know we're talking about data early on yeah and there was an evolution of a career called category management um, which is more analytical more financial but it still required this person to front the customer so have the ability to be able to negotiate and work with the customer but work cross-functionally Within internally within the business to be able to sell a proposition. And what had happened at that time, we were talking to national account managers that are in sales that had, a bit like myself, commercial nows, a little bit more analytical. And it was talking to companies going, okay, we really need this person because we need those analytical skills. And I said, well, have you looked more internally at your good national account managers that have got good financial skills because some of them did and had to have because of some of the retailers that they were dealing with. So they're able to make the transition a lot easier. So my advice is probably more to employers rather than to individuals is excuse the, and it's an Australian vernacular, give somebody a crack, give somebody a go, <laughs> let them prove themselves because if they've got a... Um, passion for it or they've got an appetite for it because I've seen a lot of salespeople that maybe they're not the best salespeople but they've ended up in sales but they're more analytical and they're better in a category management or a consumer insight role it's more marketing that maybe that's more along along the lines of work that they should be in Mm. and that's where we've seen the evolution of a lot of different functions within the companies that I recruit for that that well, the retailers commanded it, to be to be honest, but in saying that, that those roles have evolved and I think there is a great, excuse the expression, greater appetite for those cross-disciplines. Cross yeah, yeah. I think um, from a, from a, then from a person who's been in that position in a company and, and looking for opportunities, I, I think one of the things is to... Um, uh, one of the things is to talk about what you're interested in as well. It's not to the detriment of your role, but if you never talk about being interested in, um, you know, in wider business management, in understanding, you know, what goes on in a business, if you're not curious and inquisitive and willing to try something new, then, um, y- you know, why would anybody just like land it in your lap? I think there needs to be something about you that is willing to, to play with the other parts of the business in the first place and um, to work well with them to develop good relationships, all of that sort of thing. So I think that's critical, even if you don't think. So I remember um, back at the company that you and I first met, Jason, um, I was I was a marketing manager for a couple of brands and we had a, a big a big brand uh, sort of come into the business uh, that we represented from an agency point of view. And uh, the first six months of someone running that business was not going very well. It was kind of spit separate from everything else. And uh, the managing director at the time said, would you, would you take this on? You know, the, it was in a bit, you know, the 
division was in a bit of trouble and all of that sort of thing. Now, if I had stuck and kind of went, well, no, 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 I'm just, you know, I just do marketing and that's all I'm interested in. But because I had launched brands, I had worked with the um, the CFO in the business about how to run good financials, how to present a business case to the board, all of that sort of thing. I'd worked very closely with the national account team. I'd been out in Mm. stores and had a look at how our products showed up in stores for consumers. It gave me a reputation for being interested and willing to learn in the business. And as a result, um, I ran that that division for uh, 12 months. I, um, you know, I turned around, um, you know, 20% behind budget um, to being back on budget again, you know, saved half a million in inventory costs, um, you know, developed the relationship with the brand principal to such an extent they extended for three years um, and um, took on a new branding proposition that one of my team had developed. So, um, you know, I would, that was a really, um, it was sort of a game changing role for me because all of a sudden I had learned and started to understand how marketing and what I was doing was related to a bigger part of the business and how I could be more holistic in terms of talking about where marketing sits and it's about the customer but how do we deliver on a promise and all of a sudden all of that connected um but I you know would have very very been very easy to say no thanks I'm very comfortable here um but they recognized in me that I had perhaps um the ability or the resilience or or enough curiosity to to take on that really difficult customer and that really difficult role. And I, again, you know, be really grateful for that, but I also had put myself out there and developed the relationships with other parts of the business. So I think that's something I'd say to people as well. Go and go and, and build your network in the business. And, and I think um, yours is a great example where, as a originally as a specialist marketer that you were, mm. right, and I think people can define themselves a little bit more about, well, that's not in my job description or that's Mm. not part of my responsibility. It's like going, well, it really is because, you know, your role should be holistically cross-functional because you've got to be able to touch all elements of the business. And, again, getting back to another famous Australian vernacular is you don't ask, you don't get, Mm -hmm. right? And my advice to any candidate is like what you did from a successful point of view is put yourself out there to ask the question and actually say, I'm interested in some of these more diverse responsibilities, whether it be, you know, from a marketing point of view, geez, I want to look at a national account management role or I want to look at something in supply chain. It's something that's, you know, you go, oh, my God, that's a little bit different. And Mm. you challenge the employer, right? Mm. Mm. And I think... In today's world, I think employers are a little bit more open to candidates doing that, and you're not necessarily having to go outside to recruit an external person. And we do know the cost of going to market to recruit an individual versus actually having somebody that's got already the knowledge of the business internally, which, you know, I think ultimately, and to to your example about what you're able to achieve in terms of turning around a non-performing brand to the success that it was, is it was your ability to be able to work cross-functionally as opposed to being a e.g. seen as a purist marketer by trade. Mm. And that's what I would say to people that are, even though it may not be your cup of tea, doing it for a period of time enables you 
let's be honest, to make yourself more marketable, whether it be internally. And let's be honest, people don't stay in jobs forever and a day. But, yes, it is your career. And ultimately, you know, you've got to look at it as a career and whether that be with the company you're working for or beyond that, but you are building your own brand. And by doing that, it does make you more marketable. Mm. I think and, also, and again, your, yours is a great example of, 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 of you put yourself out there. You know, you put yourself out there, sometimes you're going to get knocked down. But, yeah. you know, the old saying, you get knocked down, you get back up. And you've got to keep doing that and keep doing it until people say yes because the yes will come because yeah. of the tenacity and the endeavour and all those sorts of things and your ability to demonstrate success that you, you actually can get the results on the board. Yeah. A lot of people ask me every day, oh, you know, I get told I don't have the experience. Well, just put yourself out there to get it and you yeah. you are going to get a lot of no's along yeah. the way. Yeah. And, and I hate to say it, I hate to use it, it can be a bit of a numbers game, but you've just got to put yourself out to ask the question because I'm sure I'm sure in your endeavours to do what you did, I'm sure it just didn't happen overnight either. So No. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a three-minute story, it sounds really easy, but um, no, it wasn't. No. Um, you know, and it, I didn't have yeah. the full engagement of the team I took on. You know, no. some of that was quite difficult. The brand, you know, and, I mean, that's just one example. I've had that happen to me in, in other roles since where, you know, people have I've, – I've talked about, you know, um, oh, I really enjoy these things. This is where I thrive, that sort of thing. But I've never shied away from, I've never avoided the the hard bits of the job to do that I don't particularly enjoy. You know, I didn't really love national account management, but it made me a much better marketer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because I could have the conversations, like have real conversations, um, meaningful conversations with the team. I could understand what a buyer sitting on the other side and saying, well, I don't know about your product. I could, I could, I'd been there and at least I'd had the experience of, of doing that and could say to the sales team, okay, so, all right, so if they say that, how do we get over that? Have you, have we asked them that, that sort of thing? And it became a real partnership. And I think that's the other thing that really sells you and makes you really marketable when you build um, we come back to relationships and networks. When you build partnerships, when you build great partnerships, and I think that's so, I think that's been um, a bit of a key in my career, not just my career, if you like, in a in as being employed, but in my career as an entrepreneur as well for the last three mm-hmm. and a half years. Have you found that um, in, in your entrepreneurial life? <laughs> I think um, if I reflect back and I think, hey, Everybody's got a story about what's happened over the last two and a half years, particularly with COVID, and 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 I think that's thrown a massive spanner in the works. But we've we've seen a, a proportion of it before, not from maybe as 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 breadth from the global perspective, um, is that people have had to adapt, be more flexible, and those sorts of things. And if you only look at the industry sectors like, e.g., travel tourism, hospitality, all of those industries that, that that how have they survived during this period where everything's been in lockdown is that, you know, and I've got an example of a, of a terrific client of mine that's a, it's a quick service restaurant, it's been in hospitality, but they've, they've, they've spread their business into retail, into consumer goods, uh, which, you know, you wouldn't actually initially think of, 
But, you know, with that entrepreneurial, and, and if we get back to your question around the entrepreneurial nature, a lot of this stuff has taught me a lot of things along the way. And you're never too old to learn more. You know, you're always about self-improvement and those sorts of things. And the things that I've seen for people to have to adapt, particularly over the last two and a half years, is you look at how companies are hiring. Is that like over the journey, like I've said to a lot of, you know, and, and again, this is no disrespect to any senior HR practitioners or CEOs or senior executive people, is that, you know, we work in a world of a hybrid workplace, right, where people are working from home, people are working from the office, blah, blah, blah. And I've been talking about this for, it's not, it's a revelation, you know, people, flexibility in working from home and things like that. I said, but, and the thing is, is that people are not 100% driven about the almighty dollar and getting paid the big dollar. They mm. want a level of flexibility. They want a level of work-life balance and these sorts of things. And I think the biggest thing pre-COVID that it got back to was a level of trust mm. and a trust in an individual that they're going to do the right thing. And my view on that, and I always had talked about it, is that if you can't trust somebody, then you're not hiring the right people. Because at the end of the day, yeah, everyone's going to take advantage of it. And it doesn't matter whether it be in a small way, in a big way, but if they're doing the job and doing it well and doing it in a way that they they feel comfortable, whether it be growing, you know, you know, uh, you know, seeing their kids grow up. And that was one of the reasons why I started Max Executive is because I just wasn't seeing my children. And I post them turning sort of seven, eight, nine, is that I've seen them play football and all those sorts of things. That's what motivates people. Now, that's motivating it from my end. Other people might be in a different cycle of their own life, but at the end of the day, so if companies are not going to trust in the people, and, and it does start with a hire, and I'm not just here about promoting recruitment, but if they're not necessarily identifying the right people that they're going to hire, because there's always going to be an element of risk because you're never going to know 100%, oh, okay, is that the right decision? Is that person trustworthy? Is this... Obviously, they've got a reputation and all those sorts of things. But I look at it from an entrepreneurial point of view, like what you did from the example you displayed of not just being a marketer but being a business unit leader from a holistic point of view, is that if you're not prepared to put yourself out there and take the risk, and that's exactly, you know, what I've done, what a lot of other, you know, other recruiters have done uh, along the journey, you know, to to that end, you've got to just put yourself out there. And that's what I say to people, make sure you do put yourself out there because that's how you will not just build a network but demonstrate your ability and credibility to deliver a result. Mm. And hopefully at the end of the day, people will give you a go. Yeah, I, I think too that one of the things uh, early on in my career, because I'd moved around a little bit, um, there were there were some companies that kind of went, oh, you've moved around a bit or you've changed jobs a lot. And I kind of go, well, <laughs> actually, I worked yeah. for somewhere for three and a half years and got promoted three times. So, you know, it, it's kind of, it, it's difficult because I loved, what I loved most was the ability to take what I had and go, I wonder if it applies over here. I wonder if it makes a difference yeah. over here. And that's kind of how my mind works. I like to kind of join the non-obvious dots, if if that makes sense. And that that sometimes, uh, particularly early in a career, I think can come across as a bit flighty or unreliable or things like that. But the more I delivered results, the more I had, um, you know, we were talking before about the power of data, uh, being able <laughs> to actually demonstrate. So it's not just about 
um, you know, are you a nice person and do you think you're fit in the culture and all of that sort of thing? Are you trust? Are you worthy of my trust? Um, but it's yeah. also about giving people people buy on emotion, but they justify on reason. It's something we talk about a lot um, in branding. But, you know, underneath <laughs> yeah. we all buy because we go or we like them or we feel we can trust them or, you know, there's something, there's something. But then we've got to tell the story of why we did that thing, why we made the decision. So then we go, oh, well, you know, they've been a national account manager for three years and they've worked in all these sectors and look at all the results they produced. And other people go, oh, that's very good, you know. So there's that balance, I think, also of wherever we're positioning ourselves, whether we're a candidate, perhaps whether we're a company that are looking for a certain type of candidate and a, and a sort of thinking about how do we position ourselves to say, get more of these entrepreneurial people or get more, I don't know, maybe data scientists because that's quite a new a new thing I guess um you know thinking about both lenses uh not just the data and the results and not just the do I do I think this person will fit how can you yeah I think it's a blend of both because you know I I said recruitment's easy before there is a certain science to us from a behavioral based interview point of view and we've we've you know along the way we've took we've been We've learnt those skills along the way from a, a, not just a recruitment, from a broader human, well, people and culture point of view and those sorts of things. Yeah. But uh, you, you make a valid point. You mentioned how you'd said you'd moved around a little bit. And I mm. think candidates do get a little bit nervous around, okay, well, I've got a few holes in my resume because I've moved around a little bit. I think if anything in the last two and a half years has taught, taught us that you can mm. because people forgive. Right. Yeah. And it's not about forgiving you going, oh, my God, you know, I was only in a job for six months. But the reality is that there's a reason for it, yeah. right? And if you can explain the reason for it, it was like, okay, I was brought into a certain, do a certain project and that's it and I delivered the result and I did a great job, mm. we move on. Yeah. That's life. You just move on. And yeah. I'd say to you that I think, you know, the sensitivities around COVID have created a certain humility and human it's, it's it's more about an understanding that people are going to move because the nature of what what the market is doing is it forces people into more project contract-based roles yep. versus full-time employment and we are in a marketplace even to this day that you've got to be more flexible about how you're recruiting it's not just recruiting a full-time executive that's going to come in and do a job for five years. Mm. It might be somebody that's coming in for six to 12 months that's, whether it be a maternity leave or whether it be a specific project around a new product launch, and they're there to do a job and they move on, and that mm. happens, and we're seeing that more and more regularly. So I say to people out there, don't be afraid. Again, the old saying, give it a crack because, trust me, is it builds some of those other skills beyond just what you're being specialised in. Yeah. And I know we've talked a lot about FMCG, but, you know, like as I said, you know, one of my great clients at the moment who, as I said, is in quick service restaurants and is a fran retail franchise that's growing globally. Um, you know, it's it's the, the point of difference that this business has got, it's about culture. And, again, that's not rocket science either, but you can pay a lot of lip service to it all. Is that if the people are not buying it, they don't buy it. Is it? But if they feel it, they see it, they touch it, and you actually can demonstrate it, and that's what people keeps people engaged, that's what keeps your retention rates up mm. and people are not leaving. And here's a business that, and 
won't name them, but that that um, that I go, my God, you know, would I have seen myself recruiting for this company five to ten years ago? Maybe not. Mm. But now I look at it and go, I'm glad we've gone down this path, and I've been fortuitous enough to be exposed to other things that have taught me new things along the way. Mm. And you know, I've been in recruitment for twenty odd years, and I look and go, well, this has taught me. Not a whole new thing because the process doesn't change greatly, but dealing with this type of business has. And it's changed just, not changed, but it's also helped me look at different ways of looking at things as well. Yeah. Because you yeah. can caught said as we get a bit older, you can get caught in your set in your ways. Yes, <laughs> if I definitely. can put it that way. Definitely, definitely. And uh, you know, I love those two things. And I just wanted to sort of pull one thing out. You know, there's this whole move and mindset to the gig economy, and you know, there is <laughs> this whole. You know, you, you speak to particularly um, younger people coming into their careers. They don't expect a job for life, and in fact, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of them are not necessarily looking at careers in the traditional sense they have a thread yeah. of what they're interested in and what they want to do but they want to move around they want to um have the confidence and the resilience to try new stuff to apply new things they're more willing to say oh i thought i would like doing x i don't i'm going to shift completely which is you know, for those of us who are older, kind of go, oh, well, you know, maybe you should stick with it. And, you know, we get on our soapbox a bit. But um, what a what a breath of fresh air approach to take. Um, there's, I mean, there's a balance, but how many of us have sort of, uh, you know, stuck in jobs where we feel safe rather than sort of take the, the leap and go, no, that's not what I want. Um, you know, I'm a real advocate, as you know, of you build a business and you build a brand to serve your life. And that's the same with building yeah. a career. If you're building a business or a career, don't have that run the show. You've got to do the work and build your credibility and all of that sort of thing. But think about what you want in life and then go, how do I build something that fits that? You've done that with Max Executive. You know, you've got to, to you know, be part of your kids growing and 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 that sort of thing. And, and you know, of course, I, you know, I know um, your wife and or, I've known you guys for for years and it's just amazing to see how that shift from um, employed to you know being the entrepreneur has allowed you to to make different choices I think and prioritize yeah yeah like but I like I, I'd say that I've been mentored by some good people that have allowed a level of flexibility have allowed um, you to explore those sorts of things yeah that yeah, I can say that I've been fortunate in that respect. Uh, you know, yes, you you know, ultimately you create your own luck. You know, yeah. the old saying, good luck and good management, you know, my view of it is it's a hybrid between the two, yeah. right? And ultimately timing is everything. And I was fortunate enough at the time in starting Max Executive, it was probably at the right time where the market, you know, in 13, 14, where the market was absolutely flying, um, both, um, you know, from an employment point of view, the economy was flying. Um, and, and and I get back to you were talking about graduates, people that are just starting out in their careers, is that I'll be honest, I look at it and I even say to my own kids, is that one, things like affordability around housing, uh, affordability around, you know, you know, getting a, getting a jobs. It's hard. It's a lot harder than you know, excuse the expression back when you and I were doing it. Yes. Purely on the <laughs> purely purely on the nature of just the nature of what the market is commanding and demanding. Yeah. Right. And I look at it and going, I can understand why there is movement 
at that level. But there's movement at every level. And I say that it doesn't matter what age you are. I think the climate and the economic, not just the economic climate, has opened up many doors to people at varying ages, mm. which is great. Yeah. Right? Uh, even us, excuse more older folk, that <laughs> um, I think it's opened up the door. I think it's opened up the door because people want the experience. They want the knowledge. They want it here. They want it right now. Yeah. And that's what you're effectively buying. And I think that's where somebody that it is a bit older that's maybe a little bit more apprehensive and got sick of being knocked back on the basis of, okay, it could have been somebody that was more of an up-and-comer that they've looked at. And I've got to be careful about how I represent that from a legal point of view. But I say that openly to say that there are more opportunities out there. But, again, you've got to put yourself out there. And that's what I say to people, make sure that you are prepared to do that. Yeah, and that you're positioning yourself well, that you're actually thinking about what that is. And I 100%. think, yeah, and one of the things um, I think having a a relationship, a really good relationship with um, a recruitment partner, whether you're a company or a candidate, um, can really help you to refine how to position yourself, how to brand yourself for what you want. Um, and, you know, if you're finding that you're sort of landing in, in roles that are not quite or being offered things that are not quite you or you're missing out, you know, get that feedback. Ask for feedback from, you know, from whoever's been the intermediary for you and even the company. Um, you know, sometimes it is hard to get honest feedback, but developing, as you said, developing the trust and the relationship between you allows you to perhaps hear some of that feedback and say, okay, well, if I want that, that's what I have to do. Am I willing to do that? And if I'm not willing to do it, then then at least I know. And to your point, I know I've talked a lot about trust and credibility and networking and that. And let's be honest, it's pretty basic stuff, right? Mm. But ultimately, I think what we forget about is the basics get forgotten. And I think in a marketplace, it's very complex is that we forget the basics. Yeah. Um, and I know you'll laugh at this. And it's not saying... Who are the worst interviewees that are going around? But believe it or not, the more senior and even, you know, whether it be a senior executive or a CEO, is that they forget what's actually got them to making them good because clearly they are good because they wouldn't have been promoted into the roles that they're in. Yeah. But when they get into an interview, they assume that the interviewer knows what made them good to start with yeah. and that might be perceived as and i've got to be careful about but i'll just put it out there it might be perceived as arrogant right and they're going oh you know i don't think that's the right fit culturally for our business and i think that getting back to actually explaining what's made you good and a lot of people go, oh yeah but that's pretty basic stuff i'm like yeah but if you're not actually telling your story and, what, and you've got to do a bit of excuse the expression, a bit of chest beating. You've got to talk a little bit about what makes you good. Yeah. But ultimately, if you're not putting, again, putting yourself out there to do that, and you can get smacked down for it and all that sort of thing, but ultimately at least you're providing the information that enables the decision maker or the interviewer on the other side of the table to actually make a proper decision rather than going, well, they didn't really say too much about this and this and this, where you talked about, okay, well, I was able to turn around a brand that was in 20% decline to successfully where, where it got to. Hey, you've got to put yourself out there just saying, hey, I did this. Yeah. And a lot of people a lot of people forget it. I know it's basic and this is about networking and building credibility and building trustworthiness. Again, they're all very basic things to talk about, 
But again, I think we forget about those sorts of things because we think more, I think because we're so driven through the social media aspect and the, and, and it's very fast paced. We live in a world that, that it's, you know, it's, it's, we need to slow it down a little bit, I think, in my opinion. And you can do it yourself by slowing yourself down and going, thinking, okay, these are the sorts of things I really, from a positioning point of view, how I want to position myself and what I want to stand for. And it's a bit of a bit of an ego trip. You can talk about, oh, what was my legacy and all those sorts of things. Well, hopefully that's what you're known for. Yeah, absolutely. And if you and we talked about it all the way through. If you're not prepared to tell the story, you know, it doesn't happen by osmosis. You have to actually uh, no. tell your story. So because otherwise, you know, if you can't articulate that, you know, those wins and who you are and, you know, what you stand for, there's no trust. There's no, you know, there's no building a foundation between you that could develop either into, you know, a job offer or a client or, a you know, whatever, whatever that is, whatever that is. Yeah. And, and the, the thing I love is that, you know, uh, particularly when I'm talking to, whether it be a candidate or a client or a prospective employee, is that they can hear it in my voice. Hmm. Is it the passion, the tone, those sorts of things? And again, it, like I was talking to a candidate yesterday who I've known nearly as long as yourself, and 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 built a really strong relationship with them. And they said to me, "Jace, I've been in this one company for twenty years." Wow. I said, "But you've been in about twelve different jobs." Hmm. I said, "That makes you marketable in itself because it says you've got the ability to diversify." And I said that those job functions are not just, yes, you're a sales expert, but you've done many other job functions outside of sales in the organisation. So, therefore, it makes you marketable to the to the open market in a variety of different job functions. And he could hear the passion in my voice just about, even though he'd been in the company for 20 years, it's like, going, oh, maybe people look at me going, oh, geez, am I going to be flexible enough? And the cut the, that, that particular company might operate in a certain way. Well, I said, well, they've had to evolve and develop. And if you can tell the story of how that company's developed and evolved and how you've actually gone with it on their story and you've actually done a diverse range of things that what you were talking about earlier, then it opens up many doors. Mm. Right? And that's why, you know, when people are chatting with me, it's more, I don't know, I, I, I just love the passionate part about seeing people succeed. And if, if and succession doesn't necessarily mean promoted but they're happy in what they're doing you can see it they're enjoying whether it be their family or their life in general you know and and i know that that sounds a bit corny or whatever but ultimately it is you know mm. it's, it's great i love i love seeing it and that's what it should be all about you know so. yeah brilliant I want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about, you know, what's coming up for you. We've talked a lot about the past and the present and all of that sort of thing. You know, what's what's coming up for you and Max Executive in the future? I suppose like any business during during COVID is that, you know, there was a, a space of where there was a bit of, there was a little bit of downtime. So it's not a case of rebuilding. It's a case of just continuing to build those brands because there's a lot of new brands coming into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. The challenge in that I've found that there are a lot more international players looking at Australia. Mm -hmm. And when 
understanding, and again, I know it's going to sound pretty basic, where you've got this duopoly that we talked about in Coles and Woolworths. Yeah. Is that the two big things when I'm communicating to prospective employers and particularly companies that are looking to invest in Australia, and I can give you many examples around a business like um, Asahi, which is a Japanese company that bought independent distillers, that bought CUB, that bought Schweppes. Um, they had no knowledge. I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. They had little knowledge about, okay, what the Australian market was about. And I think that they learned it's taken them time to build their knowledge. And this is no disrespect to them because they've done a wonderful job, is that it's taken a while to understand we've got this duopoly where in other territories around the world, you've got this competition that actually makes it healthy. Yeah. And the other aspect is that the vastness of Australia, e.g., we are such a big country. Yeah. Like in Europe, I like I define it, and again, it's very simple. You get in, get in a car and, and you're from the UK, you get in a car and drive somewhere, where here you've got to get in a plane and fly. So the cost of doing business in Australia is mm. huge. Mm. And I referred to the QSR hospitality business, franchise business I referred to before, is that they're looking to launch into the United States. For example, the, the hospitality people in Australia working on a base hourly rate versus in, in America, which is more on gratuity, they make, they make very little in a base salary, but they make a lot in tips. It's a very different business model. So it's more costly to, to do business mm. in Australia, mm. but it's worth, even though it could be one, two, three, four percent of your global market share, it's about building a brand here in a country that is very brand centric, if I can say it, because they, they're very, they're very loyal to yeah. the brands that are here. And there's a great opportunity for new businesses. So if you're talking about what I'm looking at is that I'm looking at companies that are looking to develop and evolve. And I've worked with a few of them over the last few years. And that's part of my mantra is that looking to work with those companies that are looking for that, that, and they don't have to be the big, large corporates or whatever, even though I've dealt with a lot of the big, large corporate, I don't mind. I look at it more of what value you bring to the table because a lot of these companies either have a larger HR people and culture team, or even they have internal talent teams, but I do work with internal talent teams a lot because they can't fill every single job. So my point of difference is trying to work with these teams around identifying talent, and you're not necessarily recruiting jobs that are live. You, 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 you're representing your talent, your talent pooling for candidates that are generically, they're looking for work, but you may not necessarily have a job that's available right now, but you go to good senior executives going, hey, I've got this great candidate. I know you may not necessarily have a job right now, but as part of your business planning over the next three, six, 12, 18 months, you may be looking for a good brand manager or a good marketing manager and that, you know, you may be looking at an acquisitional trail that will have that ability to do that, e.g. like an Asahi, and they've developed and evolved and, and it's been wonderful to see. But it took them time to actually understand what the Australian landscape I suppose, look like, and I suppose I look at it as part of our job and I get back to what we mentioned at the start about knowledge, is that it's that knowledge you can impart on these both organisations and the candidate that if you can demonstrate that in a certain area of expertise, because 
I don't go and recruit IT people. That's not my bag. I don't go and recruit finance people, even though I've come from that sort. Yes, I do do some of that, but it's it's not my area of specialisation. I'd say that there are other. I, I'm not afraid to talk about other recruiters that I've got good relationships with. I don't have a problem in doing that yeah. because they, I know that they're going to do a better job than I can. And at the end of the day, that if you take on something that you know that uh, you sort of oh, I'm not sure about. Again, that can impact on your credibility if you don't deliver the result. So, yeah, yeah. So, what's Absolutely. you know, what's can, can it's a it's an it's a, sorry, I'm interrupting there. Sorry about that. It's all right. It's it, it's, <laughs> it's it's evolving. So, from my point of view, I'm I'm looking at more newer opportunities where I can influence change rather than getting on that treadmill and it become very transactional. And candidates and clients can get the feel of that and you're just transacting and doing it over and over again and you go, um, just another number. Okay, yep. well, what value do I actually really add? And that's what I'm looking to continue to keep evolving. And, again, this is not rocket science and it's not reinventing the wheel, but it's it's continually evolving from where we've grown from towards what I know, and particularly post-COVID where companies and people are more open to newer ideas because I think that there is a there is a want in the marketplace for it, it's not necessarily different things, but it's more value-added things that can actually bring something to the table because it, it doesn't necessarily have to be a new product as such, yeah. but it could be something of the value proposition that we've talked about along the way. Yeah. So I will continue along the way of, you know, I've got, you know, a lot of work on at that mid to senior level, mid to level uh, sales and marketing type roles within the uh, sectors that I've referred to from, as I said, from FMCG to hospitality to that, that retail franchising mm. market, sport and leisure, and those sorts of industries that the that, that companies and people have known me for. But again, it's, it's looking to continually evolving that value proposition because I look at it. It's not every company is going to be recruiting. So you look at, it could be HR consulting work where there are specific projects a company may, that may not be able to afford a HR department or a company that does have a HR department that's overrun by the work that they've currently got. So you're just tapping into a broader, broader range of services. Um, we see a big thing around mental health, right? Mm. Mental health is a big thing is, yeah. is that I've got, somebody that I deal with that, that actually works with companies around mental health issues because um, that has a significant impact on productivity yep. but also the general health and well-being. I said it, it, it's demonstrating to candidates or employees that you actually are generally invested in their future, whether that be also including I can throw in their training and development or learning and development. You know, there are many other things that, that you can look at to help build your culture, but they're the sorts of things that I work with, not not just being an end-to-end -end recruiter, but you're looking yeah. at other services that the that Max Executive provide from, as I said, from HR consulting to learning and development to executive coaching. And I know that you've seen a lot of that um, to mental health issues. These are the sort of things that, that we are, and like I'm evolving that those businesses as we speak. But again, I'm not a specialist in those areas. So I actually get people that actually do it and that subcontract sub with me and are happy to do that because they know that from my networks and that they're going to get a good response from the people that I deal with. Brilliant. So again, it comes back to what's your brand? What's your, you know, what, what are your relationships and, and who do I trust? You know, it's that you've become a go-to. Um, so we've been talking 
all over the place, um, <laughs> uh, you know, over the last however sorry long about that. No, don't be sorry. It's great. Um, it's a good sign when um, the host doesn't do have to, to do too on. much talking. <laughs> Um, Okay, so um, Building Brand You is a very, uh, what we like to say is an action-oriented brand. It's about taking something and putting it it. into action. So is there a nugget that uh, you could share with Building Brand You listeners today that they could take away and implement tomorrow? I referred to it earlier. You know, we live in a very complex world. And I think we overcomplicate things for the sake of it. And I think we've all learned the KISS principle of keep it simple, is that if I could advise any company is to don't overcomplicate it, simplify it by ensuring that the processes, the people, and many other things you're trying to achieve within the business, and even though, yes, there are more complex things around new technology and those sorts of things, don't overcomplicate your business because it tends to absorb a lot of time that you don't need to use. And I think there's a lot of time wasting that goes along with a lot of the new technology and things like that. So my advice is around keeping it simple. And from a value proposition, and again, not an overly complex, complicated thing, and I've not just been how I've been brought up, but how I've not just from a my own parents' perspective, but also early on in my career, is treat others as you want to be treated yourself. You know, my line of work where you hear some horror stories about how people get treated, yeah. right? You know, that, there's not a line of communication that all you want is a phone call back, even an email. Like I had a candidate saying, even though I, I didn't mind it, even it was in an email format, but some level of communication back to a candidate. Because the hardest part about what I do in a job is saying no to a candidate. I hate it because, and I hate's a very big word. Strong term. (laughs) Um, But but if you're talking about a shortlist of five candidates, only one candidate can get the job. So at four out of five people, you're saying no. And typically most of those people you know and you know well, and you don't want to say no because we're people-oriented. So we want to make sure that we say no for a reason, whether there's a nugget in there for the day, you know, the feedback that they've been, the feedback we've been given from the perspective employer that there's an area of improvement of how they've tried to present themselves. They may have gone a little bit underdone from a preparation point of view because my view on recruitment and and and, and looking at the interview process, again, not rocket science, is a bit like property. We talk about location, location, location. Yeah. The interview process, the three Ps, preparation, preparation, preparation. You know, 80% of the job for an interview is done before you walk through the front door, before you see somebody, or via Zoom, or whatever you, however you get interviewed these days. Yeah. I say to people, if you don't go in prepared, you are going to be found out. And if that's talking about your point of difference, that will show through in an interview process. So, again, I get back to saying treat others as you want to be treated yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. It has been an amazing conversation, um, Jason, and I'm sure there'll be people out there that are sort of wondering, how do I get in touch with this guy? How do I find out more about Max Executive? Maybe there's some people who are, um, you know, over the other side of the world looking at how they can, you know, invest in Australia, come to Australia, uh, those sorts of things. So we'll we'll put all of your contact details and everything in the show notes, but is there a sort of like a preferred way um, you suggest people get in touch with you? LinkedIn, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, LinkedIn, LinkedIn. (laughs) It's it's such a powerful tool in the sense that 
I know Facebook socially has driven this whole new marketplace, but but LinkedIn's become such a it's the biggest database in the world for not just recruiters, but for prospective employers and things like that. But I, I find that I, I had a look at my LinkedIn profile the other day. I couldn't believe how many people I'm connected with internationally. I'm yes. like going, I don't necessarily know these people, but I can see why they've connected because it's related to the industry sectors that I recruited and things like that. So I'd say LinkedIn in general, because you can shoot a quick message, say, hey, so-and-so's referred me or I've seen your details and it's just an easy way of contact. And you do get a lot of people from different parts of the world that are going through tougher times than it is here. We are, let's say, we are we, we are definitely the lucky country um, and that um, people want to come to Australia to, to not just live but to work as well. So, yeah, I'd say LinkedIn is definitely my preferred choice of uh, how I get in contact with. Brilliant. And it's been, hey, it's been great catching up with you. You look oh. really well. Uh-huh. Thank you. Thank you. We'll um, see each other soon in person. So that will be even Absolutely. better. So we'll be able to talk about all this other stuff that we haven't talked about today. But um, Jason, I just like my very good friend. Um, thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. I am absolutely thrilled. I think there's so much in there for people to take away. So thank you for your, your time and your generosity. Um, it has been brilliant to have you on the show. Oh, no, no. And thank you to you too, because what you're trying to do and get the message out to other people through differing people, whether it be like myself or whatever, you're doing an absolute sensational job. So thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk to you. And it's good. I know it's been a little while since we've seen each other and we're obviously going to catch up face to face as well, but can't wait for that. Brilliant. Uh, Listeners, uh, well, that's it from Jason and I today. Uh, Looking forward to sharing more from Building Brand You next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Building Brand You podcast. I'm Kim Hamer, and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For all the latest news and special offers, hot tips, and exclusive content, you can also become a member of the Building Brand You Facebook group. Just type Building Brand You into the Facebook search box and request to join. And if you want to unlock your reputation, your results and your impact right away, our new program, The Vice Squad, is now live. You'll find the link to find out more and to register your place in the show notes. I help people to accelerate their success by unlocking their greatest asset. If you'd like to find out more, please book in for a free 20-minute coaching call at calendly.com forward slash Kim Hamer forward slash BBY chat. Accelerate your results by unlocking your greatest asset, you.